in Europe. Basically, th this moment is how we got to be here. Without these moments that we've read about, we wouldn't have the gospel, and so therefore we wouldn't have our salvation. So they are key and pivotal moments to what we're, uh, where we are in our situation this morning. Uh, thanks to Kev for leading through our first little bit. Kath, thank you for, for taking us through our reading, and uh, it's been great to now come and share God's words uh, together. So we've skipped over verses 10 to 16 in, in our little section of uh, chapter uh, 17. And but just really to set the scene, I want, just want to skim very quickly uh, through those. That, that Paul and Silas have been uh, teaching with, with great success uh, in Berea. Uh, they faced further opposition from the Jews in Thessalonica. Uh, and now we find that Paul has moved on to Athens. And so as we uh, heard in our reading, as Kath read to us, this is where we're going to pick up our uh, verses this morning, that we are in Paul's second missionary uh, trip. This is a the city of Athens. So Paul finds himself in the city of Athens, this city of great, great philo uh, philosoph philosophical debate, easier to say than it is to read. But we find these, these group of men sat in the Areopagus, something we're going to look at a little bit later on. And the Bible says very clearly that they long to hear and to talk about there's something new. And so here is Paul bringing something new to these philosophers, to these men who would sit and think, who would talk, who would debate, who would, here's that word again, reason, something that we're going to come on to um, a little bit later on. So if Paul is going to share this message that's new, that's something new, then Athens is the place to share it. The city of Athens is the place to come and share this message. You see, we all have our own Athenses. We all have our own places where we can come and share God's message. That might be at home, it might be at work, it might be at school, it might be wherever. It might be the people that we meet on the street, but we all have our own opportunities where we go and we share God's message. So as Paul makes his way around the city, he sees this group of idols, this gathering of idols. From a few of you that were here last week and remember that quiz we did, the gaggle of idols. There was this great big group of, of idols everywhere. They had, you name it, they had an idol for it. I mean, any of us would that did anything about Greek uh, history and school would know that we had Zeus and Mars and all these different gods that these people worshipped. And so, as Paul makes his way around this city of Athens, he comes across this group of very religious people. We know that because there's idols everywhere. These idols were there everywhere for a purpose. They weren't just there to adorn every street corner for the sake of it. They were there for worship. And so here we have a group of extremely religious people. And that religiosity would allow people and would allow Paul an opportunity to test his mettle in terms of evangelism. James says, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And Paul is in the position of having his faith tested in Athens. This begs a question. Are we as Christians, for those of us that are Christians here this morning, as we sit here in Great Park Chapel, in having had this moment where we come around the table, we've been able to say thank you to Jesus for what he did for us on the cross, what moments have we had this week where our faith has been tested? What 
experiences are we willing to open ourselves up to, to God next week to say, test my faith. Prove my steadfastness. You see, that's what Paul is doing. He's taking that opportunity to go out and to t- put his faith under pressure. So Paul is in the marketplace, as we uh, have considered before. He's sharing the message of God in public. It was done in discussion. It was done in debate. He would have actively listened to what people were saying. You see, the text highlights he reasoned. You see, if we were read, if we, as we read from the NIV, it said reasoning, but, but you know, let's not split hairs. The meaning is the same. You see, reason, as we considered before, is an interesting thing to highlight. We learnt last week that reason is to speak through from one side to another. You see, Paul would have taken on board. He would have applied logic and then justified his beliefs in order to help his audience understand his message. That begs a very important question. When we do have those opportunities to share our faith with people, do we reason with them? Do we take that chance to sit and to listen to find out where that person is? Or we just, just simply go straight for the throat, if you will, and talk about sin and hell and judgment and everything else? Or do we actually take the time to find out and to reason as to where that person is? Do we apply logic? And do we justify? Do we give evidence for our beliefs. Can I suggest, friends, that we need to be careful to listen to what other people have to say when it comes to sharing our faith. Taking cues from what other people are telling us and giving us when it comes to share their faith. You see, the second point I'd like to make about reason is this. We're all people with a level of intelligence and ability. What we need to do is we need to be careful that we do not trust our reason and use God. Rather, we should trust God and use our reason. Does that make sense? That we get to a point we are not trying to win Christians for, for God off of the back of our own intelligence. Rather, we are saying to God, God, give me the words. But we are using those words and our reason to apply logic, to justify our beliefs, to give evidence in the conversations that we are having. There needs to be a reliance on God when we reason with people. You see, God has given all of us abilities to run businesses, to teach, to run a home, to lead a church, whatever it might be. But let us be a people who trust God and use our intelligence rather than use our intelligence until it runs out and go scrabbling around in the dark for God. See, this is the key of what Paul was doing. Paul was bringing God's message, but he was allowing God to speak into the hearts of these Greeks. So Luke introduces us to two groups of people. And Paul discusses and he reasons with these groups of people. And in an unsurprising turn of events, the message of God divides these groups of people. So let's meet them. Let's find out about them. Now, I am no ancient Greek philosopher. So my level of expertise in this 
is very much surface level and it's very much reliant on other people. So I'm going to let other people do the work for me. But I'm not taking their credit, I'm just going to let them do the work for me. So we're first introduced to these Epicureans. Now the Epicureans, their group and their thinking was that they were a philosophers that were devoted to sensual enjoyment, especially that derived from food and drink. Now, if we take it at surface level, there are many of us that are Epicurean in our thinking. I'm glad I'm not alone in that fact. But when you drill down into what the Epicurean really stood for, that they believed in this, that the chief goal of life was pleasure. But to be clear, that pleasure didn't lead to overindulgence. You see, they believe that mankind is not answerable to a creator. They believe that the universe was created by a series of atoms that bumped into each other, and here we are as the result. You see, these people believe that man, body, and soul are just atoms that separate at death, and death is the end. They also believe that the atom couldn't be, the atom couldn't be split, but that's an entirely different matter. So here was this one group of people. Then we come to the Stoics, or those that believed in Stoicism. These are the people that said uh, a philosophy of life that maximizes positive emotions, that reduces negative emotions, and helps individuals to hone their virtues of character. That all sounds rather wonderful, doesn't it? Let's be brutally honest. You could pick up any self-help guide that's out there and read words that are very, very similar to those of the Stoic belief. You see, the Stoics believed that the universe was simply a, 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 a product of cause and effect. Or let's call it fate, because that's what we can wrap it all in. They believed that the world is all there is, suffering and... They had the idea that the soul was just something that lived for a short while after death. They believed that if you had a strong soul, that would last longer than a weak soul. And finally, they had no hope of a world after this one. They didn't believe that life could get any better than it was at this particular moment. So those are the two groups of people that Paul stands up against. Of course there are others, but Luke doesn't tell us about them, so we shan't comment on them. But we should take it from this, that we have two groups of people. The Epicureans who sought life's pleasure, but not to overindulge in life's pleasure. And the Stoics who said, this is all there is. Everything else is simply fate. You could divide the world, even now, into those two groups of people quite easily. You could take 50% of people you meet in the street and took the other 50% and you can get them quite easily into either one of those groups of people nowadays. Do we see, friends, there's nothing new under the sun. And yet what we realise is that Paul begins in the Areopagus, Paul begins in the Areopagus by defending his faith against these two quite hostile groups of people. He stands amongst the group and he is given a chance to speak out. Let me ask you another personal question this week. How many times in the past week have you had an opportunity to speak out for Christ and said nothing? Done it. 
don't look at me as if I'm somehow, because I'm up here, I'm somehow fantastic at these things. I'm simply being challenged by the Word of God in the same that I want to challenge you by the Word of God. I've done it. I wish I said. Okay? My best mate is hindsight, I tell you. They're absolutely like that. But here Paul takes that chance and he stands there in the Areopagus. He stands there in that court. And he begins his sermon by addressing, again, the religiosity of the people in court. We've also uh, encountered those two groups of people. But now he widens the net. He does exactly what the gospel is. It's all-encompassing. It doesn't count for this group of people and not for that group of people. The, the gospel is a message for everybody. And so Paul wides the net. How does he widen the net? By mentioning the statue of the unknown God. Now Paul is all-encompassing. Now Paul has got the eyes and ears of everybody. And so Luke gives us this slapshot that uh, Kath read to us of just these, these, of what exactly Paul says. You see, but when I read these uh, verses in Acts, I get a, a very real sense that Paul focuses on the attributes of God. Paul focuses on what God is really like. And I want us uh, to do the same. I want to encourage us to do the same as we share the message of Jesus. So Paul starts with creation. I love that picture. It's not technically right, but who cares? And so here, Paul starts with creation. He begins to challenge the Epicurean. I proclaim to you, says Paul, that God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, there is a way to start some evangelism. Where do you go from there? Well, I'll tell you where you go from there. You go into the, one of the most hotly debated topics of the current day. Creation. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Did we evolve? Was it a happy accident? Or was it God? The most hotly debated topic, arguably, amongst the world today. Yet it's absolutely fundamental in explaining the gospel. Because it's where the gospel starts. Right there. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. That is the beginning of the gospel. Of why the next 23,000 odd verses are so important. If you want to count them, be my guest. But Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning is the most fundamental, basic part of the gospel. You see, because if God doesn't create us, he has no authority to claim on our life. He has no authority to make demands on our life. If he has no authority to make demands on our lives, then, then we can simply ignore him and do as we please. Conversely, if he creates us, then he has the authority to make demands on our lives. And we can ignore him, and we can do as we please, but there will be consequences. You see, the notion that God created the world is under attack. Because it's, if you remove the fact that God created the world and everything in it, then there's no need to be answerable for, to sin. There's no one to answer to. 
Here's something for you to think about, perhaps, as we go into the week. What did God name in Genesis? Day, night, heaven, and male. Called him Adam. And what does Adam do? Adam branches off into that little bit of biology called taxonomy, where he looks at a horse and says, you're going to be a horse. And he looks at a duck-billed platypus and goes, right. <laughs> and what do we find in the world at the moment? Isn't it interesting that there's a movement to say that there is no male, no female, that there's no gender, you can be non-binary. You can pick whatever you wish to be. Why is that? Why have we got that? Why has that become so prevalent? I believe it's a deliberate attack on God. If you change the name of something that God Almighty has given its name... You take away something that was marked at eight was special. If you take that away, you have taken away the fact that something that God has marked out as special. What separates us from the animals? I'm reading a very interesting book on it at the minute. What makes us different from the animals? In a sentence, it's this. And in him, he breathed the breath of life. We are God's creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We might not feel like it at times. I've said this before and I'll say it again. We might feel like a barnacle clinging on for dear life. But we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are mankind. When you read of man in the Bible, in the general sense, it means mankind. And yet here we have the name of man under attack. Because if you take that away, it's another reason to say that there is no God. If there's no God, we've got no one to answer to. That is why Paul starts with, with creation. That is why Paul bases his argument on the God who made the world. You see, I could be completely wrong about that. But it's certainly food for thought. Paul then, in verse 26, deals with the accusation that he is preaching foreign gods. If God created the world and everything in it and all mankind and that one man came from Adam, then God cannot be foreign. He cannot be foreign to any part of the universe that he creates. He must be known. He must be understood. The fact that people try and dismiss who God is said that they are aware and acutely aware of the fact that there is a God. Why are people obsessed about where they go after they die? Because Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. We are acutely aware of a fact there is a God. So as Paul sets out God as creator, he goes on to talk not just about God creating everything, but he also talks about God sustaining everything. Paul uses the words of the Greek poet to describe the God he is talking about. You see, the God he is talking about is not far from each one of us. The one in whom we live, move, and have our being. That should give us comfort as God's people, shouldn't it? The fact that we can read his words 
And as we sit here this morning facing whatever trial we face, we know that in him we live, move and have our being. No matter what life is doing to us at the moment, no matter how barbaric or how brutal or how fantastic and wonderful it is, because let's be honest, there'll be those of us that are either end of the spectrum, there'll be those of you that are thinking, actually, how dare you have no idea what I'm going through. No, I don't. And with the greatest will of the world, I don't have to. Because that's not my purpose this morning. My purpose is to remind you that in him we live, move, and have our being. Take it to God, whatever it is. I want to let you into a little secret. Leave it there. Because we are fantastic at giving to God and saying, God, will you do this? And then five minutes later, we're scouring the internet. Some nonsense. How many times have we, the doctor says, well, you might have X, Y, Z, and the first thing we do is go home and we consult Dr. Google. And the next thing we find is the most horrific and horrendous thing that's going to happen to us if we have an ingrowing toenail or whatever it might be. Something's going to fall off. Leave it at God's feet. In him we live, move, and have our being. See, you can imagine Paul in full flight. The great orator with the audience eating from the palm of his hands. The word of God flowing from his lips freely. And he says to them, all these things, this eyes worship, this sitting here debating whether God exists or not, there was a time when God would forgive that in, his innocent, in our innocence. There was a time when God would say, okay. But you see, not any more. Because Paul goes on to say, and he talks about the God who judges you. He talks about a God who said he has fixed a day when he will judge the world. You see, this is an attribute of God that people get a bit allergic, a bit nervous about. That we sometimes have a hard time getting to grips with. See, Paul is very clear that one day God will judge the world. He created it. He sustains it. And as creator and sustainer, he has the right to say what is right and wrong. Who sets the rules in your house if you have children? If you say the children do, then I think we need to have a further discussion. It's the parents, is it not? Should be, shouldn't it? Yeah? It's the parents' responsibility. They're the parents. They're in charge. So why is it any different for God? Where did you think that came from? Just by happy accidents? Two parents thought, I know what we're going to do. To stop little Johnny from going and cutting his head off with an axe, we're going to say, don't play with axes. So if this is the same in our homes for those of us that have children, it's the same with God, isn't it? We're in charge in our houses... God's in charge of the world. And so therefore, if, God can, if, if we can set the rules in our house, guess what? This is God's house. So he sets the rules. It's not complicated. And yet here we find people who have the hardest bit to look at. He fixed a day when he will judge the world. What about you this morning? Does the fact that God will one day return and judge the world change your worldview? 
Does it make you sit up and realize that God isn't distant? That God will simply overlook your sin because in your eyes you're a good person? You see, we are told very clearly that God will judge the world. And we have a choice to make. We either accept that Jesus took God's judgment in our place on the cross and we submit our lives to him, or we don't, and we choose to face God as a judge. But we do it on our own back. We stand there alone and we face the consequences. Or do we get splinters? Do we sit on the fence or do we bury our head in the sand and just ignore it altogether? You see, Paul closes his sermon in Acts with the resurrection of Jesus. So we need to address the question, why does a resurrection of Jesus now mean the world needs to repent? It's a question I, I confess I found a challenge as I looked at this passage, but I believe the answer is this. Jesus is God's appointed man of judgment. The God who has the right, the entitlement, because of who he is to judge, has chosen to judge through his son Jesus. God raised Jesus back to life in bodily form. And he ascended to heaven in a body. And in that same body, he will return to the world. Yes, we could go on for hours about the who, what, what, and wherefores, and how it's going to look like, and when it's going to be. And there'll be those of you that are thinking, Lord, I can't take any more of this nonsense. Hurry up and come back. And I don't mean my sermon. But the simple fact of the matter is that Jesus will come back. Jesus will return. You see, this time, not in grace. He won't come back as that fascinating little baby in the manger. I still get confused as to how you can have all of the Godhead wrapped up in a tiny little baby, but there we are. I look at Elias and I just see noise and mess. But <laughs> And yet here we have this time the fact that Jesus will not return in grace. He will return in judgment. He is alive, and he will judge the living and the dead, so Hebrews tells us. It also tells us that man is destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. You see, this judgment will be carried out by Jesus, whom the Bible says very clearly is the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus will return. And for those of us that know him, what a day that will be that we will go to be with him. We will be changed in an instant. For those of us whose bodies are wrapped with pain. For those of us who are going through anguish. Will we be changed into a glorious body where there will be no pain. Where there will be no anguish. And there we will spend eternity with him. So Paul he preaches his message of God to the Athenians. He challenges the Stoics and the Epicureans. He uses the attributes and achievements of God to prove his point about who Jesus is, that he is the revelation of God through a person. Paul shows the audience 
that the God of creation, the God who stains, the God whom through his Son will one day return as judge. But that God is the same God who is merciful. The God who can be found if we are willing to look for him. And the God who commands all people everywhere to repent. And so as I close, I do so with this. I hope you've been challenged this morning by this incredible scene in the marketplace of Athens. If we are God's people, we have the challenge, as Paul did, of sharing God's message right where the people are that we meet. Isn't it interesting in Scripture that Jesus said, go. He never told people to come. He told us to go. To go and to share God's message. Paul, at the end of his little chapter here, knows those who believed. Those who were convinced by the message of Christ and it changed their lives. Some mocked when he talked about the resurrection. And others said, we will hear about this again. Which one are you? Which one are you? The Lord bless you. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for speaking through your will this morning. Father, we are reminded that your word is alive, that it challenges, that, Father, it teaches, it trains, and it rebukes. Father, help us to be a people who are taught, who are trained, and at times who are rebuked. Father, we thank you that Paul gave a very clear message that he preached Christ. Father, as we go into this week and as we share your message, Father, give us that clarity. Help us to preach Christ. Father, nothing added, nothing taken away. We've preached Christ crucified. Father, as your word has gone out this morning, may I ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Well, thank you for uh, spending time.